Planet Earth is reaching her natural limits. Our climate is in dire need of our attention and our equality and safety are more and more under pressure. People in organisations make these problems bigger or they solve them. To contribute to a better world, we need leadership that works in harmony with nature. What does this leadership involve? And how does it work in practice? Welcome to The Expedition, a podcast from Expedition Good Life with your host, Dan Van Lin. In this podcast, we are looking for leadership for a better world, guided by nature. The guest of this episode is Jeremy Lent. Jeremy has done profound research on the way our world and our society works, building on ancient wisdom, philosophy and science. He is the author of two great books, The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Meaning. The Guardian proclaimed him as one of the greatest thinkers of our age, so it is a true honor to have him on this show, moreover because he knows the business world very well. Jeremy is a perfect guest to answer the question of our expedition into leadership for a better world. Hey, but Jeremy, so good to have you on this episode of uh, The Expedition. Well, Dan, yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. As with any episode of The Expedition, we start our first question. And with any guest that we have talking about our meaningful place in nature, a place that gives you some form of energy or that Mm. has a special meaning for you. So could you tell us a little bit about your meaningful place in nature? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, for me, there's a place I I, I live in uh, Marin, and well, I I live in the in Berkeley, California, which is in the San Francisco area. And for a lot of years of my life, I lived a little bit north of there. Yeah, everyone's heard of the Golden Gate Bridge, and just north of the Golden Gate Bridge is this beautiful area called Marin County. And there's a mm-hmm. lake there, a small little lake in this beautiful unspoiled uh, greenery and um, it's called Phoenix Lake, which was kind of appropriate for me because um, I discovered it right as I was kind of really having first access really to a, a deep, more meaningful connection with the natural world. Cause I, mm-hmm. I grew up in England, in fact, in, in the suburbs of London where to me, like the natural world was like the the sun was more like this really glorious light bulb, and the sky was like a sort of um, really nice big sort of wallpaper, like very non connected with nature. And mm. the first big the first half of my life, similarly, I was in business and very unconnected with um, really deep connection. I went through a kind of a real critical period in my life when I started to open up to new possibilities, and part of that was discovering the beauty of just hiking in the natural world. And this particular lake, so beautiful, it's about an hour's walk all around the lake. Um, Mm -hmm. And I made it a practice for about a year or two, actually two or three years, to walk around the lake every single week of the year. So it was a little bit like my on Walden Pond kind of thing. Like, and I got to know every aspect of the lake through the winter and the summer and the different. And I I discovered sort of um, sitting down and meditating and feeling the natural things around me. And I love the fact it was called Phoenix Lake because the idea is the phoenix 
arises from the ashes. And for me, I was going through a transformation in my life and it was very much like a, a natural awakening happening. So I love to go back there still. And every time I go there, it feels like I'm, I'm home. Yeah, wow. That, that is a very meaningful place. And it's nice that it has this name as well, like the Phoenix, like you described, right. rising from the ashes. Yeah. Um, rising from the ashes, is that also referring to uh, your period as a CEO of the internet company? <laughs> what what um, are we referring to here? Yes, yeah, it does. It, it sort of refers to really the, a meltdown that happened in my life um, at as that part of my life came to an end and before the sort of current part of my life that I'm in right now um, emerged, really. It was like a real phase transition. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, if you want, I can just give you a little bit of background about that. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, it might be interesting for people to hear. Because basically, um, uh, I spent this really big chunk of my adult life Actually, um, in the business world, got an MBA, actually um, uh, founded my own internet company back in the first dot-com craze back in the 19, late 1990s. Um, mm -hmm. It was successful. I took it public. And then it's like things around crashed around me. Um, my wife at the time, who passed away some years back, began to get seriously sick. I left the company to look after her. Left the company too early. The company collapsed. Meanwhile, um, my wife, who was my my only sort of deep, meaningful relationship, I was met her when I was 21, um, and she began to have cognitive decline. So I looked after her for years before she died, but I really lost the person that I loved. And I went through this period of like, what is my life about? Where, um, where did this meaning come from? I really was committed to lead my life in the future in a way that was truly meaningful. Um, but I didn't want to take somebody else's word for it. I felt I'd done that in this first part of my life. And so it was really like a crucible where everything sort of melted um, that I had built up. And I, it really allowed me um, over years and years of my deep investigation to um, sort of remold what, was, what my life was about uh, in this current direction I'm in. Well, and not only your own life, but also because what you describe in the book, The Web of Meaning, basically touches upon the lives of all of us, right? Well, that's that's true. And I, uh, a part of what I really began to discern was meaningful was to, uh, that as I went through this kind of journey of trying to really understand where meaning comes from, and not take our dominant culture's ideas as given, but look what other cultures uh, came up with over history. Try to understand our human um, psychology, where how we evolved. And as I began to piece this together in a way that was meaningful to me, I had this deep sort of imperative felt in me to share with others the, the results of my own journey. And in fact, I've written these uh, two books that have tried to do that. And the first book mm -hmm. um, is called The Patterning Instinct. And the subtitle of that is A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And that's more like a deep history of looking at the different ways in which humans have made sense of the universe all the way from hunter-gatherer times to the present, because that was this um, research I did. But this more recent book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, is really me sharing what I pieced together from all the um, wisdom around me, like um, modern uh, brilliant thinkers 
and both scientific and spiritual, and the great spiritual traditions of the past, realizing that actually there is a way of finding meaning in our life that doesn't have to throw out science and believe in some uh, some sort of woo-woo faith or whatever, um, but also can be can be scientifically valid, but deeply meaningful throughout our entire interconnectedness. Mm. And because you also describe on your website that our mainstream worldview has expired. Could you right. elaborate a little bit on that? Because is that yeah. part of one of the conclusions that you drew based on the search that you've done? Yeah, well, that's part of what I discovered because I entered into this kind of search for meaning of my own and coming from our dominant worldview. In fact, the thing about a worldview is you don't even realize you have it um, until somebody points yeah. it out to you. It's really like the lens through which um, you and our, well, our, we in our culture sees the world. And just like the lens of our eye, you don't realize you're looking at the world through a lens until it's kind of pointed out. It's a little bit like a fish swimming in water that never realizes it's in water because that's all it knows through its entire life. And a worldview is powerful because we don't recognize it. Um, but we assume, we make judgments about it. We think this is the way the world works. This is how values are formed. This is how I should live my life without really thinking, realizing there's other perspectives. Um, and so uh, it was only after years of trying to understand what our dominant worldview tells us and realizing that it's not just that it didn't feel satisfying to me, that, but these things are wrong, even from a scientific perspective, um, that that's... Um, I began to realize there's different ways of making sense of the world. Other cultures have made sense of the world in different ways, but it's easy from our dominant worldview today to say, oh yeah, but those, those were pre-scientific. They didn't know what they were talking about. And this is what was a great discovery to me was realizing that what real um, rigorous findings in modern science in the recent decades, whether it's neuroscience, evolutionary biology, systems science, complexity science, they actually point us to the insights that these deep wisdom traditions have been talking about for millennia, but also we realize these are scientifically valid too. So why would we listen to these ancient wisdoms? Because, I mean, aren't we doing fine? Right. Yeah, well, so, so it, it sort of helps um, to really maybe get more granular and say, well, what is it about this dominant worldview that I'm saying is wrong or whatever? So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> in, I mean, there's, we can sort of summarize this dominant worldview in a few very basic essential elements and a lot of things build from there. And basically, this dominant worldview is all about separation. And it basically tells us, for example, um, that uh, humans are separate from the natural world. There's something unique about humans. And the rest of nature is not just that we're separate from it, but in fact, nature is like a machine. And uh, what the human sort of project is about really is to conquer nature, to figure out how that machine works and make it work for our benefit. And in fact, um, it also tells us that actually all nature is driven It's essentially, each organism is like a machine driven by its selfish genes. And the way evolution works is basically these selfish genes just do their selfish thing over billions of years, and that's, that's what nature is. And so don't look for any sort of um, happy sense of connectedness from nature. That's all it's about. Um, and in fact, humans are, have been so successful because we outcompeted everybody else. 
And in fact, capitalism works so well because it takes that human selfishness, which is a defining characteristic, and it makes it a, um, a, an economic system which works for everyone's benefits. And really, even if we have problems, we just use technology to figure out how this machine of nature works a bit better and we'll solve all those problems. In a nutshell, that's what the dominant worldview says. And what I discovered is virtually every single statement I just made um, is not just leading us to destruction as a global civilization as we go through climate breakdown and ecological devastation, but it's scientifically wrong. It's based on outmoded ideas that have been shown to be actually very limited and misguided. And what is so scientifically wrong about it? Because obviously my previous question was a bit sarcastic. I mean, we all know that we're <laughs> stretching the limits of what we can do, right, in the world, not only ecologically, but also when it comes to equality and when it comes to security. Um, yeah. But what is so scientifically wrong about this? What yeah. Well, and maybe the the simplest way to sort of start to looking at it is to really look at some of those statements I made. Like, first off, that nature... Um, is all driven by selfish genes, and um, and that's um, and evolution is the result of like all this competitiveness of selfish genes out competing each other, and many people will have heard of Richard Dawkins, who wrote the the sort of classic book, um, the selfish gene, back in the seventies. He did a great job of popularizing these ideas, and people think, well, that's what science tells us, and if we want to believe otherwise, we have to over, we have to sort of reject science. The opposite is true. In fact, what evolutionary uh, biologists now show is that well, um, well, first off, that nature is not just driven by the genes. That actually, if you look at any organism from a cell or any org complex organism all the way up to humans and other mammals, it turns out that actually the organism itself is this complex feedback flow between the cells and and the environment we're in and the gene. And while the gene is an important part of evolution, important and critical part of who we are, we're not driven by the gene. It's not like there's this little um, little um, sort of android there going, okay, I'm going to like make this organism do what I want. Actually, it's a feedback effect. And the cell um, tends to express certain, ele certain elements within the gene depending on the environment and what it needs. And it's not just um, that that's this feedback flow, but there's this whole selfish notion is mistaken. Well, every organism looks out for itself and there's definitely competition in nature. When we look at the great um, evolutionary steps since the first cells began on earth billions of years ago, it turns out the big transitions towards this incredible complexity and abundance of life we enjoy today, there's only been like four or five of those to, um, to complex cells and multicellular life and organisms, all this stuff. Every one of those was the result of different organisms learning how to cooperate better with each other, learning that rather than a zero-sum game of competition, things got better if, you, if they took their skills and actually worked with others in a mutually um, beneficial symbiotic relationship. And it's, the, it's that learning of different organisms, how to work better with each other, that's led to this richness of life that we enjoy today. So this is one example of, of yeah. a plain, like factual incorrectness that we build our dominant worldview on. And do you think also then that if we want to solve the problems that we are facing right now, say climate change or inequality in the world, is do we also then 
what are you suggesting? Do we need to do we need to work together? And with whom then? What what is the what is the yeah. suggestion here? Well, I think one of the most important things to realize when we look at the ecological devastation we're causing on the earth and climate breakdown is, <clears throat> as just the sort of manifestation, the most clear manifestation of something even deeper, is that another of these misconceptions about um, humans in relation to the world is um, at a deep level partly responsible for that, which is a sense of humans being separate from nature and nature mm -hmm. having no intrinsic value in itself, but just being there as a resource for humans to exploit to our maximum benefits. Um, and you know, sometimes people will call this um, uh, a sense of um, human supremacy, if you will, like that, that mm -hmm. nature is just there for humans uh, to do what we want, or anthropocentrism is another way of looking at it. Um, but again, when we look at life, we, we actually recognize scientifically that we're very much a part of nature, that yes, humans do have a particular uh, conceptualizing faculty that has allowed us to take the very dominant um, role in a lot of our relationship with other um, non-human natural beings. But once we begin to realize how we're part of an incredibly complex system um, and that we disrupt that system at risk to all that is in it, including um, humans as well as other beings, then it, it leads us to a different way of thinking about the biggest problems like climate breakdown and ecological devastation. That rather than thinking, oh, how can we uh, sort of keep developing our technology and keep growing our economy in a way that is a little bit more sustainable so we don't sort of, um, and how can we fix nature as if nature has sort of gone wrong and we have to come up with um, some processes to fix it. We start to ask questions like, how can we actually develop or redevelop or reorient our civilization to be in symbiotic relationship with nature? How can we look at technology not to um, sort of use nature to exploit every element of it, but to actually um, be for the benefit of the living earth as well as to human benefit? So we start to ask different questions, which leads to different outcomes. So this is also what you in your book uh, refer to as the ecological civilization then, right? Yeah, well, that um, phrase, ecological civilization, refers to <clears throat> an idea that more and more people are talking about around the world that I just came across um, a few years back now and got super excited about it because I feel it encapsulates exactly all the stuff that we've just been talking about. And it's mm -hmm. this notion of... It, basically, what it kind of implies is that we don't just need to change a few things within our civilization. We don't have to make our current civilization um, a little bit more uh, sustainable or just kind of invest in renewables rather than fossil fuels or um, add some taxes to make it a little bit fairer or whatever. We actually have to change the very basis of our civilization. We have to move our civilization itself from one that is wealth-affirming, based on extraction and exploitation, um, to one that is life-affirming, to one that is actually has as its basis setting the conditions for true flourishing for all human beings on a regenerated and healthy earth. And if, if it's just like, it's a little bit like if we have 
um, a computer system. It keeps going wrong and you, you try to fix the bugs and then somebody comes along and says, no, 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 we need to fix the operating system. We need to change the operating system because otherwise we'll just continue to have bigger and bigger bugs the more we try to do these workarounds. Similarly, we need to change the operating system of our civilization to one that is ecological and actually takes as its inspiration the principles that have led living ecosystems to be healthy and flourish sometimes for millions of years um, through doing through their own self-organized processes. So you you were the CEO of a of an internet company. Right. You know what the business world is like, right? So exactly. I'm listening to you, and I'm listening to all this passion that you have and all the research that you've done. It's it's truly inspiring. And thinking like, okay, but what if I work in an organization and I work, for instance, in an organization that you were the CEO of? How do I do this? How do I change the operating system of our civilization when, while I'm working for, for, I don't know, a credit card company? Right? Yeah. So, um, what, what do I do? I think that is a great question. And um, the fact that I did actually uh, start a, uh, uh, yeah, my own, uh, an actual credit card company and you know, took it public. It was the, actually the first company ever that it allowed people to apply and get approved for a credit card online in real time and design their own cards and stuff like that. And the fact that I went through that whole process allows me to really understand how, why it is that the things need to be changed at the more fundamental level. Because one of the things, and this is difficult, especially when you're working in a, um, a for-profit corporation, it's difficult mm-hmm. to come to terms with. But we need to realize that um, the uh, the very DNA, the very underpinnings of for-profit corporations are actually um, in opposition to the long-term flourishing of humans on the earth. That They are designed ultimately to maximize shareholder value. Um, and that's just, um, in, they're legally designed like that. So even if you have a CEO who has good intentions and wants to do things in a good way, um, if they actually make decisions like, oh, I'm not going to invest in this coal mine um, because it's so polluting and it's so destructive, so um, we're, we're going to actually take another path. So some, comp- some competitor goes and does the same thing, and then shareholders say, why aren't you looking out for our shareholder value? And they can even be sued for that. So mm-hmm. the whole system is designed to basically extract and exploit as much as possible. And a lot of corporations today... You know, come up with this sort of mantra of, you know, do well by doing good. You know, we are, um, we're offering this path of green growth and we're, we're investing in renewables. And, and by doing this and that, uh, we are making the world a better place. And so we can feel good about what we're doing. That's all wonderful within very limited confines. But the reality is that if a corporation has to make a strategic decision to do something that doesn't maximize shareholder value, it won't do that. And so uh, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to get to because, of course, corporations are filled with good people who are inspired by what they're doing and want to feel that they're doing well in the world. And I'm not suggesting that everybody suddenly leaves their job in these uh, for-profit corporations and, and just sort of, you know, puts all their energy into some nonprofit or whatever. Everyone's got 
um, their own career paths to think about, uh, families to raise, all kinds of needs that are, um, which I went through in my life. So I understand mm-hmm. that only too well. But I think what we do need to recognize is that the system itself has to be understood as being one that's destructive of life. And we need to be ready to uh, become aware of that, face those realities, and look at what different alternatives are available um, to shift towards that ecological civilization. You know, in the example of these for-profit corporations, imagine a world where these large uh, transnational corporations could only be allowed to maintain their charters if um, they actually had a triple bottom line uh, Mm. for what's called uh, people, planet, and profits. And right now there are actually uh, charters that a corporation can choose, uh, what's called a a B corporation or a benefit corporation, um, where you can choose a triple bottom line, but almost no corporation does of course, because um, they would put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. But if the playing field were changed and every corporation had to have that triple bottom line or they would literally lose their charter, like every five years it would have to be renewed and only if it met those bottom lines. As a, as a having been CEO of a corporation, I can tell you those CEOs and the whole the board of directors and everyone in the organization would shift their thinking fundamentally. Because ultimately, the CEO goes to bed at night worrying. He might say all nice things and make all these good speeches about doing well by doing good. When he goes to bed at night, he's going, well, that share price, that next uh, shareholder meeting, mm-hmm. what am I going to say about this and that? That's what they're thinking about. But if their actual charter is on the line, if they're not doing things for the planet and for um, other the people that are relating to the corporation, that would shift the whole basis of business. This might be a bit edgy, but I'm not going to get you led away with this answer just like that. Um, sure. Because you're also describing, like, if I work for this credit card company, it doesn't matter. If I work for any company, it's quite hard to change from my, like, single point of view, from my job, um, something that is so big, like you described right now. Like, you need to change the operating system. We need, for instance, a charter for companies in order to become all B Corps, for instance. But... In your book, you also describe something called fractal, fractal flourishing, sorry for the right. mispronunciation, <laughs> uh, which, which I have understood, but now I'm going to sit on your chair a little bit, then that if, for instance, if I work for such a company and I do good, right, I really have my honest intentions and I do good, that actually you know, radiates out into the company, but also into the friends that I have and even their families and is, is that not how, how that works as well? So is, isn't there something that I could do as an individual person in order to change the system just a little bit? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and I don't want anyone <clears throat> to come away from this conversation thinking that what I'm saying is that, um, you know, if, for example, you work for a for-profit corporation, there's nothing you can do to make a positive mm-hmm. difference. Quite the opposite is true. I mean, for starters, I, and I really like that you bring this notion of fractal flourishing into the conversation. And let me just take a moment to explain what that means um, mm-hmm. so we can get a better sense of how that um, impacts everything in such a fundamental way. Um, so the word fractal, um, probably some people are familiar with, um, and it, you know, it refers to these beautiful patterns that we see basically in all of nature. Where they're essentially, they're patterns that repeat themselves at different scales. 
So you see that in the patterning of leaves or lightning or the patterning of clouds or, in fact, almost everything in nature, the patterns of our own bronchioles in our lungs or our neural networks in our brains. And it turns out that actually fractals are, um, they indicate self-organized systems all through nature. And they are a fundamental way in which nature evolved, in which life evolved on this earth. And the thing about fractals is realizing if you look at an ecosystem, that every part of an ecosystem it lives, it works according to the sa same sort of principles as the bigger parts. And so there's a fractal pattern within an ecosystem that the same principles that apply to a cell, apply to an organism, uh, to a whole species, to the whole ecosystem. And what that means is that uh, the health of each level within that system requires on the overall health of the entire system. And the entire system can only be truly healthy when all of the different parts within it are living according to their um, fractal principles. So that's what fractal flourishing refers to, is this recognition mm -hmm. that health happens, it's the opposite of a zero-sum game. In our dominant culture, we used to thinking like, if you look out for yourself, then that's going to make you the happiest and screw everybody else. And in fact, the more you can take advantage of others, that'll be better for yourself. In the short term and within a limited context, that might be true uh, temporarily, but it's the opposite is true over the longer period and within a larger context. That actually people, for example, who live in societies that are more egalitarian are happier, even the ones happier and healthier, even the ones who are better off in those societies. It's not like, oh, only the the less wealthy people are better off in an egalitarian society because the society breeds trust and overall mm -hmm. health and a, a sense of well-being that's shared with others around us. Similarly, with the human relationship with the natural world, um, if we exploit nature to the point that it gets devastated, that hurts everybody. But if we actually spend a lot of our attention on just making a healthy ecosystem for its own sake for the sake of that ecosystem, we end up getting the benefits because we get to flourish within the beautiful and healthy system itself. And so fractal flourishing has a big part to play. And what it means is that every one of us uh, can actually, um, it's in our own interest to expand our identity and realize that we're not separate individuals isolated from everything else. That our identity is part of our community, um, you know, part of our friends and family, part of our um, whole region, part of our humanity, part of Earth, and to actually attend, make sure that like where we're putting our attention, focusing our energies and prioritizing our values is for those larger scales of identity, not just for ourselves. And if, when, if enough critical mass of us live our lives according to that way, that would lead to a transformation of our world. Beautifully explained, and I think we also we see a couple of examples of that already, right? For instance, if you only take meat consumption, uh, right? right. When when I grew up, um, eating meat was completely normal, right? There was meat on the table every day of the week because my parents grew up with the notion of that, like having access to meat actually makes you a rich person. It's it's something right. that is that is nice to have, right? And it's and it's, and if you can afford it, then you should do it skip forward a few years later, then suddenly I am part of a group of people, a part of a generation which says, well, you know, I, I don't want to eat meat every day. And suddenly all these vegan restaurants and these vegetarian options start popping up on menus, even in the most meat-based societies, at least here in, in, in Western Europe. 
uh, where I actually have a choice in order to do that. But that also started with a few people saying, because I remember when I was 15 years old, I was going to punk rock concerts and there were some people that were vegans there and they were saying, ah, eating meat is wrong. And I was like, why would you say something like that? And 20 years later, there's vegetarian and vegan options everywhere on the menu. Is that an example that you could say, like, this is the way it works? This is something. That- I think it is. I, I think it's it's a great example. And I think there's something really important to learn from that that whole issue of veganism and meats and that that whole process, which is that oftentimes the way to really uh, incite change, true change, is not necessarily by making people feel bad about what they're doing, but by mm. making people feel good about what they could be doing that is different from what they are doing right now. Um, because a lot of the time, you know, the sort of classic um, situation that we've probably all come across at some point is you, know, you have meat eaters and you have a, 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 a person who's gone vegan who makes the meat eater feel like this criminal, like, oh, it's so bad that you're eating meat. And, yeah. Yeah, it's, and it becomes this either or. And, and what tends to happen is that when, um, when we're told that we're bad because of something we're doing, it's a very natural human instinct to sort of double down on what we are doing. And actually, um, then uh, we're sort of viewed as the other by that person. And then we view that person as the other. And that can lead to polarizing viewpoints which don't necessarily um, lead to the outcome we want. And I think what's critical is for people to realize, oh, well, you know, you might have been meat eating because of the culture in which you grew up. And there's other opportunities that can actually be to your benefit for your own health and also to the health of the planet and also to the, perhaps most of all, to the benefit of these billions and billions of um animals who have feelings and um, actually suffer just like we do, who are tortured mm-hmm. by what are this whole global uh, um, factory farming process that goes on. Um, and so we do need to recognize that this may be one of, one of the greatest uh, sort of crimes against um, actual uh, flourishing that's ever happened on the earth is what our global civilization is doing two animals that we sort of uh, just uh, put in factory farms and and then kill for meat. Um, But the thing is, is to, I mean, for me, that's actually been a real interesting personal journey. I was a meat eater most of my life. um, And it was just to me, that's what uh, uh, dinner was about or whatever. And once I realized that there was harm, both for the climate in terms of the impact on um, emissions, as well as the terrible harm that was being done to animals just so I could eat my meal. I wanted a shift, but I re- came up against a lot of resistance in my own body that just wanted that meat. And so I've been on the, a sort of a, a gradual process over some years to finally not eat meat, but still um, eat uh, some amount of fish and occasional forays into just veganism for a few weeks just to open up to it and see what's possible. But it's a journey. And I think it's important to be really kind to those parts of ourselves that find that difficult and then not to feel, um, not to let, uh, certainly not to accuse others of being bad if, um, if they're um, somewhere else on that journey and to be kind to our own parts, to set the intention to move towards a more harmonious way of living with ourselves and with the earth and recognize that all of us are, have been, that have been raised in this dominant culture have a lot of um, very 
difficult elements within us that have arisen from this culture, this patriarchal culture that's been very harsh and that causes a lot of separations within ourselves as well as with others. And it's mm-hmm. through approaching that with kindness that I think we have the greatest ability to both um, move towards flourishing for ourselves, but also to lead others to a more flourishing path. And what you're describing is that it may be difficult. You might be the first one. You might be the only one. You might be dealing with a lot of things that have been laid down upon you from generations before you. Um, but people who are listening to us, I also want to send them away with a with a glimmer of hope, right? So what? So what? What would you say is where do you start? Not necessarily maybe you're like not eating meat anymore, but where do you start contributing to a better world? Where do you start? What is the what is the starting point for anyone? Yes, well, I think that uh, one of the most important uh, discoveries, really, that I made and that I um, try to show in this current book, the Web of Meaning, is this realization that we are all deeply interconnected in this complex web, and. I think once we actually start to realize that this dominant worldview is wrong and and so destructive, and that we and we begin to have the intention or desire to want to be part of something that is um, more hopeful for the future, more life affirming, then it helps tremendously to realize that it's not just us alone. Um, and the the first place to begin, I feel, is to reach out to others who are also. Uh, on a similar kind of path and to look for others who, and maybe others who might be a little bit further along some of these paths of moving towards interconnectedness, not because they're better than us, whatever, because, but just Mm -hmm. because they happened at a certain point in their life to make some of these discoveries, maybe a little earlier. So they're, they're sort of more deeply connected in that interconnection. And once we start to uh, maybe join groups Uh, depending on what is meaningful to us, uh, maybe internal spiritual growth or groups that are more community-based or groups that are more politically based, trying to make a bigger difference in some of these big global systems. But whatever is driving us to join groups of other people with like-minded ideas and then absorb that with them, to share with them the heartbreak we might feel at what's going on in the world around us, because sharing actually is one of the most valuable ways to not feel, not get stuck in that doom and gloom. And then to share also with them that movement towards engagement, actually making a difference with others, a positive difference. And none of us are going to change the world by ourselves. And we don't need to be intimidated by the immensity of that. We just need to know that we are connected with millions, hundreds of millions of people all around the world who are also having similar perspectives and who also want to move towards that life-affirming civilization, that ecological civilization. And that as long as we are connecting with them and we're helping others also doing what they're doing, we can feel that we're actually part of that shift. How do you want to be part of the shift, uh, Jeremy? What's next? Well, actually, uh, you know, I'm so inspired by this notion of an ecological civilization that I've been talking about that actually I'm planning to now write my next book 
actually about an ecological civilization. And mm-hmm. because oftentimes there's this famous quote that um, uh, it's easier for people to imagine you know, the end of the world than, than the end of capitalism, uh, yeah. because we're so embedded in, in this capitalist system, we can't even imagine what life might look like without it. And what I've begun to discover is there's actually a very well thought out set of practices and ideas and approaches in every aspect of our civilization that pioneering people are thinking about that could be the foundations of a very different ecological civilization. So this next book will actually look at this kind of pathway towards future flourishing. So we realize that we do have an alternative for our future. Hmm. You have not written the book yet, or at least it's not published yet, but can you give us a little insight? What what kind of practices will you be discussing? Um, Well, for example, um, that idea I was talking about in relation to corporations earlier is one of the, mm. these notions of just shifting what is the underlying DNA, if you will, the underlying legal charters of corporations. Another profound idea um, that actually Rutger Bregman has, has, has written about a lot, who I'm sure people in, in the Netherlands know well, uh, is this idea of universal basic income, an unconditional basic income that everyone, every human being should have access to, because we recognize that actually the wealth and the bounty that humans have created over thousands of years of work really belongs to everyone. Um, it's, it is really like a common wealth. You know, when somebody, an entrepreneur starts a company and becomes a billionaire, they don't really, it's not like they deserve those billions of dollars. Actually, Mm -hmm. they just did one little tweak to this incredible wealth that belongs to all humanity. So universal basic income would fundamentally give people a sense of security, ability to focus their attention on what's really meaningful to them rather than have to sell their their sort of lifeblood and their, their soul just to uh, make ends meet for one day or another. Yeah. Okay, Jeremy, uh, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. I feel that uh, we've touched upon uh, a lot of points. Uh, And I also feel that it's great that we can take some of these concepts that might be a bit abstract, like abstract, like fractal flourishing and an ecological civilization and bring it down to people that actually work in credit card companies listening to this and feel, at least I hope, I take away from this, like, there is hope because if I do good and if I reach out, then together, you know, we'll make things happen. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that's really what I hope people take away from this conversation is this recognition that when we realize our true deep interconnectedness, that is like a liberating uh, understanding. And it allows us to feel a sense of both meaning in our lives and a sense of empowerment that we can be part of this movement towards really a regenerated earth.